Well done. Hey, y'all. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I am the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church. Can I just say it is beautiful to see all of your faces this morning? Normally, y'all are pretty shadowy in the theater. <laughs> so today I get the pleasure of staring you all in the face, and it is such a joy and a privilege. Thank you for being here with us. We are um, taking this summer to dive into some of the stories that we know a little bit better, um, that we have a cultural imagination of. We're calling it Sunday School Horror Stories because some of us encountered these stories first at church in Sunday school as children. But these are stories that have some kind of cultural understanding across uh, our broader community, our broader culture that claims to be Christian. And so we have um, these images of some of these stories like Adam and Eve, which we did last time, uh, Noah's Ark, which we're doing today, Jonah and the whale is, is next time. So we're going to dive into these stories and unpack them. This story um, is probably the one that most directly inspired the, the concept of horror stories um, because it's a story that we love to tell to children because it involves all of these animals, two by two, so cute, um, that then get murdered. And, and we're all like, it's fine. And so just, it's actually a really horrifying story that we're, we're taught as though it's, it's totally normal. And uh, it's, it's really important for us uh, in our community to actively engage the story, unpack it, and figure out what, what is of God in this story, what is not of God in this story, and what is the truth of the gospel that we are to call out and to take away and to shape our lives with. So first I'm going to tell you the Sunday school version which some of you may know, but I just a little refresher. People were really bad. People were so bad. People were so wicked. God had created people, and then God was like, Ugh, people, they're the worst. I regret having even done this, which is very confusing, by the way, for a, uh, a biblical worldview that says that God doesn't make mistakes, but somehow God regretted this. I regret even making human beings. They're so terrible. So I'm just going to murder everyone and start again. I like to call... I like to call this the etch-a-sketch theory of theology that God started and just was like, right? So, so God is going to destroy everyone and it's fine. But uh, God's going to do this with a massive flood. And God sees Noah. And even though God has just told us that literally everyone on earth is wicked, somehow Noah managed to be blameless in all of this. So we've got wicked people and perfect Noah. Convenient. Let's take Noah and put Noah in kind of a, a little safety valve. We're going to work with Noah. And God says to Noah, hey, I know you're super old and you're working with materials from the Bronze Age, but I want you to build a massive ark that can hold all creation, okay? So Noah, a 500-year-old man, is given instructions to build a huge boat. And when I say instructions, I mean, like, this story is a lot longer than we actually read, and it involves math. There's, like, a lot of cubits involved in this story, and it's all measurements for this ginormous boat. So Noah starts building this boat, this ark, and incidentally, um, at the time, according to this story and this theology of creation, um, it had never rained before. It's actually kind of cool. In our, in our Genesis mythology, um, at this time in creation, everything was watered from a mist that just sort of sprung up from the earth. So water had never, never fallen from the sky before. So everyone was like, Noah, what are you doing? And Noah's like, no, God told me that it's just like the heavens are going to open and water's going to fall out, so I'm building this big boat. So everyone was like, okay, silly Noah. 
Somehow Noah, in addition to his amazing craftsmanship, also got two of every kind of creature on earth um, and, and brought them in, seven of certain kinds, the clean and unclean ones, um, being distinguished from one another. And after all that's done, God sends this massive flood to cover all the earth over the highest mountains, and everything dies. Like, everything. It's as everything that has the breath of life in it, which is a call back to the Adam and Eve story that we talked about last time, where the breath of God enters humanity, and that's what makes us alive. The life comes out of everything on the earth. So this flood over all the earth, taller than all the mountains, everything destroyed for weeks and weeks, for 40 days and 40 nights, it rains. And everything, everything is destroyed, except for the fish, I guess. (laughs) This is Eddie Izzard's main problem with it, a comedian I I adore. He talks about ducks. I can see how ducks could get destroyed in a flood. But fish, this is why fish are evil, because fish are the only evil creatures from the original creation to survive the flood. So everyone dies except for the fish. And then the flood over all the earth, that's that's my interpretation, I'll I'll admit to that. And eventually, the the rain subsides for weeks and further. There's water over all the earth. They can't dock anywhere um, to get out on dry land. And so God instructs Noah to send out these birds, these like recon birds. And eventually, one of the, a dove comes back with an olive branch. Let's not talk about how that olive tree either survived the flood that submerged and killed literally everything or else sprung up over a matter of days. Not important to this story, apparently. So we get everybody off the boat, and God's like, hey, Noah, what's up? I know that I killed everyone and everything, but I'm probably not going to do that again. In fact, no, I'll definitely not do that again. Here's a rainbow, I promise. So does that sound, does that sound like the story we've been told? Yeah. This is the real kind of Q&A portion. I want you to participate in this vocally. What are some of the things that teaches us about God? Super fickle? What else? If God gets mad, God's going to kill all of us. What else? Except for the special people, right? So there are some people ordained by God to be saved and some people not. And the fish. Anything else this teaches us about God? That God makes mistakes, that God regretted creating humanity? What else does this kind of basic story teach us? Anything that teaches us about humanity? We're the worst. We're the worst. We're expendable to God. God's love is conditional on our behavior. Does this sound like the God and the relationship between God and humanity that we see elsewhere in the Bible? No. Does this sound like the God of Jesus Christ who preaches that unconditional love? No. Does this even sound like the God who created us just a few chapters back who says, you are good. You are very good. No. And so we've got a lot to contend with in this story to understand why it became a part of our Bible, to figure out what the truth is, and to figure out what has gotten distorted in our understanding of God so that we have this story that seems so counter to the God of love that we know and worship. So as adults, some of us, 
or as very inquisitive kids, we need to start asking some questions about this. And I think that there's a, a willful ignorance that we're often asked to buy into in Christian contexts where we don't ask simple questions, questions that come up pretty quickly when you start to, to investigate this. And so I want, I want to start off this conversation by a clip from the TV show Good Omens in which an angel who will be on the left and a demon on the right are discussing some of the confusing elements of this story given our assumption that God is good. Hello, Aziraphale. Quali. So, giving the mortals a flaming sword, how did that work out for you? The Almighty has never actually mentioned it again. Probably a good thing. What's all this about? Build a big boat and fill it with the traveling zoo. From what I hear, God's a bit tetchy. Wiping out the human race. Big storm. Ooh. Just the locals. I don't believe the Almighty's upset with the Chinese, or the Native Americans, or the Australians. Yes. And God's not actually going to wipe out all the locals. Noah, up there, his family, his sons, their wives, they're all going to be fine. Well, they're drowning everybody else. Not the kids. You can't kill kids. Hmm. Well, that's more the kind of thing you'd expect Milo to do. Yes, but when it's done, uh, the Almighty's going to put up a new thing called a rainbow. As a promise not to drown everyone again. How kind. You can't judge the Almighty, Crawley. God's plans are... Are you going to say enough? Possibly. Oi, Shem! That unicorn's going to make a run for it! Oh, it's too late. It's too late! Why, you still got one of them? Basic questions that come up when we, when we enter into this story. What kind of God is this who is fickle in that way, who gets a bit tetchy and wants to drown everyone? What kind of gift is a rainbow if the rainbow is just, I promise not to lose it and kill everyone again? This is a really difficult story, and I think it, it deserves our deep inquiry. We're taught this uncritical interpretation about our own ancient mythology, even though it's, number one, totally anathema to the genre, by which I mean it's weird that we would interpret it literally given the way that it was written. And two, that even if we treat it as mythology in the way that it was written, in a consistent way with how we acquired this story, that this mythology interpreted at face value in the way that we have is still wildly inconsistent with the God of love, mercy, creation, and Jesus that we worship. So first I want to talk about literalism. I want to talk about this idea that there was a massive worldwide flood, that we take this account to be a literal story about something that we would understand in our own scientific terms. Even if we take God to be the author of the Bible, 
however we interpret that. So I do. I take God to be the author of the Bible um, through a lot of layers of context and interpretation that we can get into at some other time. But like, even if we say the Bible is a gift given to us by God, we also have to understand that God is the author and creator of the earth. And so, in the same way that we read the Bible, we have to read our Earth's history, our geology in this case, to understand where we have come from, and not just these uh, few passages in the Bible. And geologists are like, nah. (laughs) Worldwide flood would have had some geological evidence, and it just didn't happen. There are some other inconsistencies with this story as well. You might call them plot holes, right? So, uh, for instance, there's a distinction between clean and unclean animals. Well, we didn't get that distinction. The Israelites didn't get that distinction until Moses. Noah comes way before Moses. So God instructing Noah to divide between clean and unclean animals wouldn't have meant anything because that distinction didn't exist yet. My biggest concern is all the carnivores on the ark, which even if you made it onto dry land, now if you've only got about 100 animals um, that are herbivores that could then be prey for the carnivores, it's going to end pretty quickly and pretty bloodily, right? So there's a, a lot of inconsistencies here, and some people who really are deeply tied to the literalism of a worldwide flood fight very hard and do a lot of mental gymnastics to get through those plot holes. But I want you to take those plot holes seriously um, so that we can take the story seriously. When we point out those inconsistencies, it's not to dismiss the story, it's actually to take it very deeply seriously and understand what are we getting at then, right? Because maybe to take it on, on its face in that literal way is actually not taking it seriously enough. So there are some massive plot holes, and, and it would be very difficult scientifically and even as a piece of literature to take this um, word for word as though it happened in this way. And, and some of that, too, is about history and the way that writing happens. That the ancient world wanted to tell stories of meaning, and we'll get into that in a, in a little bit, but these stories of mythology about understanding, assigning meaning more uh, than, than assessing or recording fact. That these are different projects that we have. And so what are the facts that we could establish to help us understand this story better? Just because there was no evidence of a worldwide flood doesn't mean that there's not evidence of a flood. In fact, there was evidence of a lot of flooding. Tons of flooding in Mesopotamia. Some of those floods incredibly devastating. So Mesopotamia was really uh, urbanized in that time. So there were lots of cities, lots of people living in dense space together. And it was known for catastrophic flooding. It was between the Tigris and the Euphrates. So sorry, Sarah, our sign language interpreter. I tried to give her a heads up about some of the, um, some of the words we have in today's sermon. So um, again, round of applause for Sarah for rolling. With- <laughs> I, gave her, I gave her Gilgamesh ahead of time, so don't worry about that one. But the Tigris and the Euphrates um, were, were the sources of water in Mesopotamia. And they were known for flooding. So we have um, geological records of some of these um, incredible floods. So in Ur, um, which is Abraham's hometown, there is geological evidence of a 12-foot layer of flood deposit, um, which comes from the mid-4th millennium BCE. There are others um, in in Kish in the 3rd millennium. Um, there, There are many 
actual historical verifiable accounts of these massive floods that would have devastated whole cities and regions. The region would have been effectively underwater. That's different than mountains being covered, right? But functionally, is it? Experientially, what is the difference between a flood that drowns your entire city and a flood that covers the whole of the earth? And so, when we're taking this story seriously, we have to know that the people who are telling this story to us, who are recounting it to us, are talking about devastating floods. In other cultures around this time, there are also accounts. There's something called the Sumerian King List, and it's divided. It's 140 kings listing their reigns and their order and how long that they were in charge. And the list is divided into two sections before the flood swept over the earth and after the flood. And so we know that that the people of God that recorded this story are not the only people who encountered these devastating floods. It's really common in the ancient world to tell history as story, to assign meaning through mythology, through hyperbole, rather than recount facts, even if the event did happen. And so what we have in the store, our story of the flood is the story of a probably true and real and devastating flood told in a way not to record scientific data for number-crunching 21st century weirdos, but to record the meaning and the feeling and the depth of that experience for generations to come so that we could know what we had been through so that we could know where we come from, and so that we could discern what our relationship to God and to chaos and destruction really is. Again, we are not the only people to have done that. There are other stories from the ancient Near East that tell of a great flood. This is where the Epic of Gilgamesh comes in. The Epic of Gilgamesh tells a very similar story, honestly. It's another cultural account Uh, Gilgamesh is a Mesopotamian hero and uh, on a quest for immortality. He finds the only person who's both divine and human in the world. Um, I'm going to call that person Ut because the longer version of that name is something I can't pronounce well, so I'm just going to say Ut for now. Um, But the Mesopotamian god Ea warned Ut that the other gods wanted to kill humans with a flood. And so this god helped it build a big old boat to save himself, his family, and animals. And then that god rewarded it with immortality. There are other such similar details as even uh, this hero, Ut, sending out a dove and a raven, which is the same in the Noah account. Beyond Gilgamesh, there are other stories. There's another hero um, whose name means exceedingly wise who had a similar story. There's another Sumerian version with another name I won't butcher. But there are several accounts of a big flood and the same elements of a story of people trying to make sense of it. So this was a story being told by people all around Mesopotamia, which is functionally all around the world, the earth, creation as they knew it, trying to make meaning. So talking about mythology as truth, these true stories that people told about things that didn't happen, that's 
kind of what the beginning of Genesis is all about. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are what we would consider primeval history. It's a huge chunk of time we're covering, millennia. It's like a preface or an intro to the, to the book of our own history that actually begins with Abraham in chapter 12. But in these first 11 chapters, which we associate with the garden and with Noah and the flood, they're like a prehistory. They're a setting of the stage for all that is to come in, in these stories that come after it. And when I was, so when I was recently, last weekend, I, I was at annual conference. So it's a United Methodist gathering that we go to every year. There was a biblical scholar there who was trying to help us um, decipher the Bible. And one of the things he said I thought was really poignant. He said, the Bible was written to be understood, but not by us, Right? So there are some people who would say, why would God give us stories that don't make sense to us? God is not a trickster. God wants us to understand. And the answer is yes. God uh, and the human beings who worked with God to create the Bible wrote it to be understood by their contemporaries, not by us. Which doesn't mean we can't understand the Bible. It just means that we have to do a lot of work in order to put ourselves into that context. So, If, geologically speaking, we can say a huge, devastating flood really did happen in that area, and we can understand that figurative historical storytelling was really important to find meaning, and we look at our scriptures and say, this is our prehistory, this is what comes before, this is why we need the rest of the Bible that comes after. It gives us a very different approach to this story, am I right? This is an origin story. This is about who we are, where we come from, and why things happen. And in fact, a lot of our work as people of faith is to find meaning and to understand God's will in the midst of things that are very confusing and very chaotic. It's something that we do as human beings. We tell stories of origin and meaning from everything as as massive as a flood that has destroyed our entire known world to why mosquitoes buzz in your ear. Did anybody read that book as a kid? We can throw up that graphic. One of my favorite books as a child is called Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears. It's a West African myth explaining why mosquitoes buzz in people's ears. And it's a long, beautiful story um, that basically ends with mosquitoes always trying to find out why everyone's mad at them. And so they just buzz in people's ears. And that isn't actually why mosquitoes buzz in people's ears but it tells true things about community and relationship and betrayal and trust. Noah's Ark is like why mosquitoes buzz in people's ears. It's trying to make sense of a devastating flood and of loss and of hope and rainbows. It's a story of why, but we can't take it at its surface value the way that we have. So we can put that away. So this myth that we have that was common to many cultures, the interpretation that we've been given, and to be fair, the most direct interpretation of the Christian Bible um, and of the Jewish text as we have it, is that human beings were wicked. God decided to wipe out the earth to start over, like an Etch-a-Sketch, but kept a small piece of the fallen humanity through Noah. And God promised, for unclear reasons, to never do this again. Biblical scholar Jennifer Grace Bird says, reading this story in a literal way, you are left worshiping an impetuous God 
who is somewhat lacking in creativity in the problem-solving department. These are people who believe that God is truly not just capable of, but willing to do this. They worship a God they literally fear and find a way to also love this God because they believe that God could do the same thing again today. As any mental health professional will tell you, the combination of fearing but also feeling compelled to love someone is foundational to an abusive relationship. We want meaning behind our disasters. But when we say that God has caused those disasters to punish us or to teach us a lesson, we're actually teaching and reinforcing some very troubling and I believe untrue ideas about who God is. And we can, we can associate this in other more blatant ways. Has anybody ever heard Jerry Falwell's assessment of where AIDS comes from? Jerry Falwell, who is a homophobic um, and very frightening uh, figure in Christian history, often preached that AIDS uh, was God's punishment for homosexuality. We hear that, and I hope that our insides churn because that feels so deeply at odds with the God who loves us, the God who created us, the God who made us to thrive and live and love. It is wrong. That is an evil interpretation that not only vilifies God's beloved, but also vilifies God as an angry, vengeful God. Now, this interpretation of Jerry Falwell's is not far from the interpretation we're given of the flood, or really any deadly event that is said to be an intentional divine punishment for human behavior. We want to find meaning behind the hard things in our lives, but when we uncritically assign that to God as though God has done something horrible to us, we actually have to follow it through to understand those implications and to see how directly opposed they are to the God of love, the God of the gospel that we claim in Jesus Christ. So let's reinterpret this story together because I do believe that there is beauty and truth in it for us, that it is in our scriptures for a reason, that we can hold this prehistory in a more complicated way and see the God of the gospel in it. I want to start our reinterpretation with a Hebrew understanding of the sea. This is the work we do to put ourselves in the appropriate context that the story was originally told. Because it was written for people, but not for us. It was written for the Hebrews. And the Hebrews had a complicated relationship to the sea and to the waters. The waters were majestic but dangerous. It was the chaos, the deep waters. And in fact, in the Adam and Eve story that we talked about um, last time, in the first creation story, God doesn't create out of nothing. I think we often think of this, there is nothing, and then out of nothing, God creates. But actually, according to our scriptures, God creates out of the waters, out of the chaos of the deep. And in that way, God puts a dome up, and God holds back the waters behind what we would see as sky, and God pushes down the waters beneath what we would experience as land. And so we end up with an ancient cosmology that looks a little something like this. Sam, would you throw that up? So you see the waters above the firmament, and then this dome that protects the earth, and the earth, and underneath the pillars of the earth, and all around it, above 
Beside and below all of creation as we know it are the waters, the chaos. These are the waters that we come from, the waters that in some ways are our source, and also the waters that God tamed, God held back, that God created out of, but also held so that they wouldn't crash in on us, so that the chaos would be at bay, so that creation would have form and logic and pattern. And so, in our reinterpretation, we start with this cosmology that says God created the earth and held the chaos at bay, and out of the chaos, which wasn't all bad, created these people and this land and these creatures, all out of love. And in our new interpretation, that creation thrived for a long time, but not forever. And things began to deteriorate. And God's creatures, who had been given free will, did begin to be wicked. Wicked in ways that they, they didn't even understand the full consequence of, the full depth of. And in this beautiful creation that God had made, the wickedness of those creatures began to undo pieces of God's creation. There was a decreation, an uncreation, and the chaos and the waters started seeping back into the earth from below, from above. There were tears in the fabric of this creation that God had made. The sin of humanity was uncreating God's work, was undoing the beauty that God had made with and for us. We undid what God had done. Our wickedness crumbled creation. It started to collapse into chaos. The waters from which we were formed started to sweep over us, and we were drowning. We were drowning. But God remembered us. God remembers us when we can't remember ourselves. God remembered that we are good, that we are from the chaos, that we are from the waters, but that we are God's beloved, very good creation. God remembered us and rescued us. There was a pocket. There was a pocket in this creation resisting, led by Noah, whose name actually means rest. And this pocket of resistance was aided by God. God saw the crumbling of creation, and God partnered with anyone who would say yes, and Noah said yes. God said, I want you to do something wild, something unexpected. I want you to resist. I know the chaos is coming in, but I will protect you. And I want you to do everything you can to bring every piece of this creation with you because we will survive this. This creation will not turn into dust, not on my watch, and we will do this together, and I will protect you. And as the waters flooded, the remnant that God had helped, the remnant that was resisting in God's name, was safe. It was terrifying. It was devastating. But they survived. They survived in the name of their God who they loved and claimed. And when it felt like there was no more rain that could rain, it stopped. The chaos calmed a bit. And over time, the remnant found pieces of God's creation that were still thriving. They got out of the boat, reestablished themselves, and with God, committed to create again. And God, our creator, who loves us, who loves this remnant, said, I will do 
what you have undone again. But I'm not going to stop there. Today I'm giving you something brand new. We'll call it rainbow. It is beautiful and it is a promise that no matter what humanity undoes in wickedness, I will do and do more and do again. I will create in you new hope no matter how hopeless it feels. I will not only bring you through, bring a remnant through so that our people thrive, but also I will put promises everywhere you look that I will never stop creating, that nothing that is undone can't be fixed and made whole again. And I put that sign in the sky and I hold it there for you. This is a very different story, isn't it? This interpretation of the story in June, Pride Month, makes me think of Stonewall and makes me think of queerness. The chaos of queer phobia and discrimination, especially mixed with racism and white supremacy, is destroying queer creation and has been for a long time. And the sin and wickedness of humanity is crashing in like a flood on queer folks and has for a long time. And yet, even in the midst of this violence, even when black trans women are the most targeted in our culture and have been for generations now, God protects God's people. That doesn't mean that this wickedness, that this chaos descending doesn't have consequences. Marsha P. Johnson is still murdered. Black trans women were still murdered in the last couple of weeks. And yet, there is a resistance. There is a resistance that sees the, the promise of God, that remembers with God who God has created us to be in all of our fullness and says, we will fight, we will build our arcs, whatever they are. The world will not understand, the world will not support us, but you will give us the tools. You will help us find a way where there is no way. And though we will suffer tremendous losses, we know that a piece of us, a piece of our humanity, will come through to the other side. In your name, you will rescue your people and we will mourn every day what we are losing and also we will trust that in the end, not only will you make and remake the world, but you will make new. And so the rainbow is that promise. The rainbow is that promise that God will keep creating, that God will keep offering up, that God will keep doing what we undo and more. That there is a new creation ahead of us. That out of the chaos comes life. Out of decreation comes creation. Out of the flood comes the rainbow. There is hope in this story. And it is not hope that God, our abusive overlord, will cease to persecute us. It is hope that when the chaos of the world crushes in on us, that our God is on our side, that our God is ushering us through that there will be life at the end and new life beyond our imagining. Who could have imagined a rainbow before they saw it? This beautiful refraction of light seeing in a whole new way. New creation is on the other side of chaos. 
And so as we build our arcs and huddle together and mourn our losses, we also have to anticipate our dry land, our olive branch, and whatever new thing God is creating that we haven't even seen yet, but we trust is good and holy. Because our God is good and holy. And anyone who tells us otherwise is hearing something wrong. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we can't even understand all the ways that your goodness shapes your creation. God, we repent of the ways that our instincts lead us to mistrust you or call you an evil, abusive God. God, we pray that you would give us new insight, new truth, that we could understand the fullness of your glory, the fullness of your goodness, and the depth of your love for us. God, we pray that we would faithfully interpret your word to see you risen, glorious, and fully in love with us, a good, good God who promises us everything and more. And we thank you for the rainbow. Amen.